0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter four. We're gonna do the first twenty verses of chapter four, which comprise the parable of a sword. Unfortunately, this is one of Jesus' easier parables. We should be able to get through it fairly quickly. First, a note on the parallel versions, Matthew chapter thirteen, starting there in verse one, we have the parallel version. It's almost exact it is exactly like Mark, except it adds a quote from Isaiah. And then Luke Chapter 8 has a parallel version, too, and it actually adds less details than either Mark or Matthew. So we're going to stick with Mark here and go through it and explain it verse by verse, starting with verse 1. Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him. He got into a boat on the sea and sat down while the whole crowd was on the shore facing the sea. Now, this is, of course, the day after... He healed all those people. He had, he had a, a healing in the synagogue, and then he waited a day that night, and then he healed a whole bunch of people. And he, then, after that day, he went up on a mountain and chose his disciples. So, a lot's been happening up here in Capernaum near his house. It says the same day went Jesus out of the house in Matthew, in the parallel version. The house is the house, probably at Capernaum, Peter and Andrew's house where he, Peter lived, and Andrew, Peter lived with his mother in law and Andrew. This is the same house where he's teaching. Remember in the last chapter, chapter 3, his mothers and brothers came up and thought he was nuts. This was after he had healed, cast the demon out of the deaf, dumb, and blind man. And the Pharisees there said he was nuts. This is the context of where we are now. And so the crowds are there at the house in Capernaum, so Jesus went out of the house and sat by the seaside probably to get away from the crowds. Now, he could have been going to talk with his mother and brothers, as the imaginative John Gill suggests, the same mothers and brothers who thought he was beside himself or nuts. Or it could have been he went by the sea to take a break and relax because Jesus scarcely ever appears to take the rest, Adam Clark says, but most probably it was to find a more convenient place to teach because the house didn't hold enough people. So he's sitting by the Sea of Galilee and seating is the normal position for a Jewish teacher. As we know, that's how rabbis taught. They sat. So that's why he was sitting by the sea, as Matthew puts it. Now this boat, well, let's go, let's mention the boat here that Mark mentions. He got into a boat on the sea and sat down. He didn't sit down by the sea. He sat into a boat, into a boat on the sea. The King James has a ship. That's a terrible translation. It's a little boat. And he sat there, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Now, why were the multitudes following him to this boat? This is the same boat, by the way, that is mentioned in the last chapter. Jesus had already used one of these fishing boats to get away from the crowds. He did it again. The crowds that are coming to see him, why? Because he'd become famous to see miracles, to receive miracles of healing, to either see miracles or receive miracles or to hear his teaching, whatever. But he was; they were all coming, and Jesus, in order to gain a bigger crowd sat in a boat off the shore. Now, of course, when you talk out of a boat, your voice will bounce off the water and will carry a long way so he could teach a whole ton of people doing that. Now, doing this probably didn't make Mary and Jesus' brothers think that he'd regained his sanity when they come up from Nazareth to, to rescue him from all this nonsense. Well, he's still back at it again. Mark chapter 4, verses 2 through 8. He taught them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, listen, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, this occurred. Some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it sprang up right away since it didn't have deep soil. When the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it didn't have a root, it withered. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce a crop. Still others fell on good ground and produced a crop that increased 30, 60, and 100 times that which was sown. All right, so we're going to take the various parts of this parable and explain them. The nice thing about this parable is Jesus himself explains it to the disciples when they asked him privately after he taught it publicly, what does this parable mean? So there's not going to be any difficulties in interpretation. In of this parable. Now let's talk about parables in general. First of all, the Synoptic Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke have about thirty of them. John has zero of them. John has more direct teaching than the Synoptics. Now this first, this is the first parable here, the parable of the sword and the seed. It's explained as I said earlier by Jesus in verse, uh, in the, at the end of the parable. Why are parables effective? They're easy to remember. They use familiar scenes that the people were used to. They clarify Jesus's teaching. They included hidden meanings which encouraged seekers to seek for more. Because you're naturally curious. You want to know how to interpret the parable. Parables taught truths that Jesus wanted to conceal from unbelievers. In other words, if you had a heart to, he- ear to hear, as Jesus put it, a heart to understand, you could understand what the parable said. But if you were out there to kill Jesus and out there to defend the, the traditions of the Pharisees, you're not going to understand what Jesus is saying. Another nice thing about those hidden meanings is that these truths were concealed such that Jesus' enemies could find no direct statements to use against him when they were going to try to accuse him before the Sanhedrin. This is the first of eight parables that came from this boat on the Sea of Galilee, John Gill says. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown the NIV Study Bible says there are only seven parables. I think that's because the last one, the so-called parable of the householder, is such a short parable it's more like a simile than than a, than a parable. So we're going to get started here and talk about a lot of parables which give the essence of the kingdom of god parables were very popular among eastern nations back then and especially among the jews and that makes it ironic because the jews couldn't figure out jesus's parables despite the fact that he was using a well-known literary device to teach now there's a key point in interpreting parables we need to find only the main point and do not try to interpret the details i remember taking a hermeneutics class at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And I remember thinking, boy, people sure emphasize that. I got the point. Why do you keep talking about it over and over again? Don't try to interpret the details. I'll tell you why, because that's what everybody does. And I'm not going to do it. I've been tempted to do it, but don't do it. Just interpret the main point. And so we'll hold to that principle of interpretation as we go through. All right. We have a sower. Who's the sower? That's of course Jesus and, and his disciples. He's sowing the Word of God. As he sowed, the first thing that happened is some seed fell along the path and birds came and ate it up. Well what are the seeds? That's the the gospel. All right, what does Jesus mean when he talks about the path alongside the field? Well he just says the path. Well, in ancient agriculture you had to have a path to walk through the field in order to cultivate it, in order to hoe it, in order to put water on it and so forth i've seen this in china with primitive fields that aren't subject to mechanized farming yet and there's there are these little paths that run all the way through the fields and they're hard i've walked on them myself and so i know what this means here that when you throw seed on that kind of path it's going to be so hard because people have walked on it for so long it made it so hard it's like concrete so it's very easy for the fowls to eat the seeds up well who were the fowls the birds well, first of all, the wayside is, symbolizes the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts, and or and of course we can apply that to anybody, not just the Pharisees. And of course, the fowls who ate up the seed was the devil, as explicitly is said in in the end of this chapter, and as Mark as Jesus interprets the parable. Also, in Luke eight twelve and Mark four fifteen, we see that the fowls are the devil, Satan. Back then, seed was broadcast. You took a Handful of seed and scattered it left to right. And so naturally, it's going to be hard to keep it all in the field and not some on that hard path. So naturally, that was going to happen. Of course, the application of this, we preach the gospel, a lot of times we are going to tell people about the truth of Jesus and it's going to fall on hard ground because we don't know who we're talking to. And a lot of times we'll tell it to people who just aren't interested, who are not of the elect to put it into theological terms. And so they're going to reject it. But that doesn't mean we still don't broadcast, we still broadcast the gospel. Okay, so that's the first place for the seed to land on the hard ground. The second was the rocky ground that didn't have much soil, and then the seed sprang up right away, didn't have deep soil. The sun came up, scorched it, withered it because there was no root. All right, the stony ground or the rocky ground, That's there's two ways you can look at that. One is that it's ground covered with small stones. The NIV Study Bible rejects that option. The other option is that Jesus is referring to shallow soil on the top of solid rock. The NIV accepts that interpretation, and so does Adam Clark. And it makes sense because if you think about it, the seed will on, on, put its roots down in that shallow little bit of earth, and then when it hits the hard stone under it, it, it can't go any further. Doesn't have, It can't get any water, and it, it gets dried up when the sun comes up the sun comes up and gets scorched and withered because it doesn't have any the root can't go any deeper now what does it stand for the stony ground stands for persecution again jesus tells us at the end of the parable here that the stony ground stands for tribulation or persecution john gill puts it this way the person makes a sudden and hasty profession of the word without a powerful experience of it they people who do this, they make a hasty assent to belief in Jesus, but they haven't actually counted the cost. Now, the question arises now, were they believers, and then all of a sudden they dried up, or were there people who didn't actually believe? I believe they didn't actually believe, because at the very end, it's the people who produce thirty, sixty, and 100-fold are said to be those who understand the Word, and I think all these other people are those who don't understand the Word, and they turn away for various reasons. So, I typically think that now i can't prove it but neither can somebody prove that this parable proves that people can lose their salvation not at all it can very easily be interpreted such that people hear the word and they don't receive it into their hearts so that they can get saved all right so that's the people who fall away because of persecution the third place the the seed last uh, fell was it fell among thorns the thorns came up and choked it and didn't produce a crop now what are the thorns well Jesus tells us at the end of the parable, when he interprets it for his disciples, he said, the thorns are the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches are the seduction of wealth. They choke the word and becomes unfruitful. And again, I believe this is referring to non-believers, however it could refer to believers. Let me give you a story of somebody I knew when I was in high school, perhaps when I just started college. I dedicated my life to Jesus when I was 18, but I always had a belief in him ever since I was four, five, six years old. And there was this guy in my Sunday school class in my Presbyterian church, and all of a sudden he got radically saved, and he was going around preaching the gospel and saying this and that, and I felt so guilty because I knew I was not committed like he was, and I would not be for a couple of years. And I watched this guy, and now, 40, 50, I guess 50 years later, he has become one of America's most successful trial attorneys. He is so wealthy that one time he wrote a personal check to buy a law school out of his back pocket. He is extremely accomplished in in the area of the law that he is and he's he's you know he's a legend in his own time. Well one day one time a good friend of mine we all went to school together and a good friend of mine hired him to help him with a legal problem he had. And as they were going to a hearing, they were talking about about Mother Teresa and how somebody had offered Mother Teresa a million dollars—the income off a million dollars—to make a trust to help her to support her, so that she would not have to worry about money, as she took care of the poor in Calcutta. And and Mother Teresa turned it down. She said, "God can take care of me." She didn't want to be tied down by the deceitfulness of riches, apparently. And this rich lawyer, this class, this former classmate of mine. This rich lawyer broke down crying as he told the story to my friend, and my friend told me he was so choked up that when he got into the courtroom to handle the hearing, he, comp- and remember, this guy is world's, one of the world's best trial attorneys you've ever, you'll ever see. He, he was talking, and he lost his train of thought, and he, and he looked at the judge and says, Your Honor, I'm sorry, I, I've, I've lost my train of thought, something that you would rarely ever see. It shook him up so bad. Now, why? He had backslidden and he had gotten the, the love of the kingdom of God got choked out because of the steepfulness of riches. And another classmate of mine who just died about two weeks ago, he was bedridden for years, disease ridden. Well, he became, he was so dedicated. He would go around, lay hands on people. You could just feel heat come out because I, I prayed for somebody with him one time and about 50 years ago. A friend of mine's father, and that friend of mine was at the beach, and she and she said, "This man, I don't understand how he backslides like that." And he prayed for my father, and he was my father could couldn't stand up; he was hurting so bad. And I said, "Yeah, I was there. I felt the heat come out. I was I was there praying with him when it happened." This man baptized my sister. He was preaching the gospel right and left. He ended up getting caught up in the money, borrowed money from the syndicate, became a, became a Hollywood actor, actually a minor one, but we saw him in movies, and. His life was thrown away. He turned his back on God, said he didn't believe in that Jesus stuff anymore, and he died a miserable death. Now, you could always ask, were these purple people saved or not? Well, this is, of course, a hard problem. I don't believe it's a mere profession of faith. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, that gets you saved, because if somebody's saved, they're going to produce some kind of fruit. But these people did produce fruit for a while, because I saw it. So I, I assume that they were just rebellious and they got messed up by, not by persecution, but by the deceitfulness of riches. So I believe that can happen even to the best Christians. I know another, she's a dedicated Christian now. She's a year younger than me. But back when we were in high school and college, it's, yeah, I believe, but. And she was chasing fame and fortune. And uh, her life turned out to be totally miserable. Her husband ran out on her. And she had tragedy with her children. I, you know, it was just a terrible situation. But she believes the Lord now. So the point of all this is, If you're going to follow Jesus, don't let the deceitfulness of riches or persecution or anything else seduce you or lead you away from staying planted in good ground and growing up fruit for Jesus. Now, the last group of the last place where the seed fell in the parable... In Mark chapter four, verse eight, still other seeds, so others other seeds, fell on good ground and produced a crop that increased thirty, sixty and a hundred times that what was sold and so the good ground I'm assuming is as Christians who follow the Lord. Now the good ground, of course, is farmland, good garden land, if you will, or farmland, it's broken up, it's manured, it's tilled, the earth is deep, the weeds are all removed. All the impediments to the life that could be grown there are removed. And the point is, is that Christians need to remove all impediments from spiritual growth. Now, what about the distinction 30, 60, 100 fold? Well, the distinction is, is that different Christians mature at different rates and at different levels. And so they produce different grace. I mean, that's just all there is to it. I mean, you talk to some people that just doggone dedicated to the Lord. You can't figure it out. They just they sell everything and they follow the lord and then you got other people who just say well I'll play around with it some. I don't think this has to do with gifts because some people are more gifted than others they're going to be able to do bigger things than others but I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about I don't think he I think that what is referring here is well, what is referred to here is your attitude your heart attitude You go forth and bring forth the best that you have. Some people's talents are better than others, but whatever talent you have, you do the best you can with it. Or it could be, he's just talking about some people have more talent, so they come up with a hundredfold instead of sixty. So it could be a difference in talents, or it could be a difference in dedication that produces that distinction in fruit. I don't know. Verse 9 in chapter 4 of Mark. Then he, Jesus said, anyone who has ears to hear should listen. This shows that there has to be a proper attitude of receptivity by one who wants to understand these parables. If one is not inclined to listen to the truth with appreciation, he will not hear it. Now, Jesus used this phrase to pique the listener's interest, according to John Gill. Listen to me, listen to me, anybody. And, of course, that did indeed happen to the disciples, because when they were alone, as we'll see in the next verse, and when he was alone, they were, they, the twelve asked him about the parable. So let's go to verse 10 of Mark chapter 4 and read through verse 20. This is the interpretation. I'm not going to say too much about this because I've already explained it as I went through, but this just summarizes it and this gives Jesus' explanation of the parable. When he was alone with the twelve, those who were around him asked him about the parables. By the way, the King James almost makes it sound like some other people besides the disciples asked, and I don't believe that's true I believe it was just the twelve, when he was alone with the twelve, comma, those who are around him, i.e., those who are of the twelve, asked him about the parables, although it is a little ambiguous, it could be other people too, he answered them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything is in parables so that they may look, yet not perceive, they may listen and not listen, yet not understand, they may listen and listen, yet not understand, otherwise they might turn back and be forgiven. Now, of course, the first thing you think when you read this is, well, why is Jesus trying to let people not understand? Is he not like them? Is he wanting to go to hell? (laughs) No, that's not what it means. Well, before we get into why Jesus wanted to hide the truth from some people and reveal it to others, let's talk first of all about the secrets or the mysteries, as the King James has it. The Holman Christian Study Bible has the secrets of the kingdom. What are those secrets? Well, I think it's very simple. Adam Clark says those things concerning the the scheme of salvation, which are not yet revealed, which is basically basic Christianity in the Christian church, prophetic declarations concerning the future of the Christian church, as the ensuing seven parables will talk about. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Well, the church is the kingdom of God on earth. NIV Study Bible puts it this way. The secret, the mystery, was that the kingdom of God had come near in the coming of Jesus. All right, let's discuss the question is, why did Jesus want to hide this from the Pharisees? The NIV study Bible says that Jesus veiled his teaching in parables so that the spiritually dull would not understand. And Jesus was not being arbitrary. The Pharisees brought this on themselves. They were spiritually dull. They didn't deserve to understand. Now, if they had had ears to hear, God, Jesus would have gladly explained things to them. Notice that Jesus didn't speak in parables till his miracles were attributed to Satan. How can Jesus openly tell the secrets of the kingdom to people who were saying he was possessed of Beelzebub? So that's why he did it. And actually, that actually lessens the judgment of those who were here, because they don't directly see when they reject Jesus. They're not directing Jesus directly. They're, direct, they're rejecting a hidden truth, which is not as culpable as, for example, when you see a, a, a tremendous healing miracle and say Beelzebub did it. So the point here is that you have got to want to understand before you can understand. Spiritual knowledge is based more upon the will rather than the mind. Here's one of my favorite verses, John 7, verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So just, let's just read the first part of that verse, John 7, 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. So you see, you got to have the will to do God's will, and then you will know, you'll understand. So Jesus was not being arbitrary; he was coding his teaching so that those who had a good heart would understand it, and those who hated him would not understand it. Verse thirteen in Mark chapter four. Then he said to them, "Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any of the parable, any of the parables?" Now this is a detail that's put in Mark that the other two parallel passages in Matthew and Luke don't have. It's sort of an implicit rebuke. Hey, this is the easy parable, guys. I've got some harder ones coming up. If you can't understand the easy one, how you go understand the hard ones? Now, Jesus, he was—he expected a lot out of his disciples. He wasn't no pushover. He was—he was a—he was uh, loved them, but he was a strict teacher. He expected a lot out of them. Verse 14. The sower sows the word. And that, of course, is Jesus and his disciples. 15. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. Now notice that Satan takes away the word sown in them before the seed takes root. That's why I don't think it's referring to born-again people. It's talking about people, they hear the word, but they don't get born again. They don't they don't act on it. The seed never gets gets planted. It never germinates. Because it says, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. The word is sown, Satan comes before the seed germinates. This is not talking about people who get saved and then fall away from, from and lose their salvation. Verse 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves. They are short-lived. When pressure or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately stumble. Others are sown among thorns, these are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the seduction of wealth and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. I'll give you another example of that in my personal experience. Just within this last year, I led a young in her 20s college instructor who was having a total romantic disaster i witnessed to her a couple of weeks later after the disaster came to fruition just as i predicted and that wasn't too hard to do i'm not a prophet but it was easy to see what was happening and so she gets very depressed near suicidal she says i've got no choice i said well, you want to believe in jesus prayed with her and for about two three months weekly this is long distance uh, on, on skype i taught i tried to teach her the bible and after a while i started noticing she didn't want to go to church she didn't want to read her Bible, and no, she would pray, but and but you know, and then the last the last thing is, she decides to move in with her atheist boyfriend and continue having or to start having sexual relations with him before marriage. Well, you know, I'd already told her, hey, that's not what Christians do. So was she saved or not? I don't know, but I'll tell you what, she heard the word, she welcomed it, but the desires for other things entered in. Jesus says the worries of this age and the seduction of wealth, that wasn't her problem really, but the desires for other things entered in and choked the word, and it became unfruitful. And now who knows where that girl is, and who knows? I'm hoping that she'll wake up before she ruins her life. I'm a little bit suspicious of human nature from things I've seen in my life. I've seen too many backslidings. I've seen too many people wander off into the world, and I wonder what in the world is the matter with their heads. If they are crazy? Yeah, but yeah, people are crazy. They'll turn their back on the Son of God. For the stupid passing pleasures of this world, which do not satisfy and which you cannot take with you when you die. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that that is the end of all I want to say about the parable of the sower and the seed. I'm not going to talk about Matthew's version where he quotes Isaiah. You can listen to my, ta- my audio on Matthew 13 if you want to hear about that. So we'll stop it here. And we will take it up next time. We'll continue with these parables in the boat, I'll call them. Parables in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. In the next audio, starting with verse 21 of Mark chapter 4. I hope you enjoyed this audio.